0: WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu.
1: It's the Metro, your daily source for the news, arts, and culture driving Detroit and Southeast Michigan right here on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin.
2: And I'm Tia Graham. Today on the program, the last opportunity to see Detroit Leroy Foster's art exhibit at Cranbrook will be
1: this weekend. We'll hear that story from In the Groove host Ryan Patrick Hooper. But first, on the Metro, the transition to electric vehicles has been exciting. Tesla changed the way many see EVs, and now other American car companies like Ford and GM have been following its path. But EV sales have leveled off at about 9% right now and even dipped a bit at the start of the year, and that's causing automakers to worry. Why are EV sales lagging in America, and what are car companies doing to change that? Paul Eisenstein is the editor at Headlight.News, and he's been writing a lot about this. Paul, welcome to the Metro. Hey, great to be with you. Yeah, we're happy to have you here because EVs is something I'm interested in, don't know a lot about. I suspect that shares uh, the perspective of a lot of folks out there. So let's just start from here. Why has growth flattened, and what does the slowdown look like in terms of the numbers you're seeing?
3: Yeah, well, you're, you raised an interesting point a moment ago. You said it's up to about 9% of the market. That's significant. Uh, for anybody who thinks, oh, EVs aren't clicking with the American public. That's a huge percentage of the market. Uh, and here's a better part. It's up almost 900% in less than five years. Yeah, it has leveled out. Uh, it's still growing slightly faster than the overall US new car market, but just not doing these crazy doublings and triplings. We still saw Americans buy 1 million EVs last year. Some folks I talk to believe that we could still see a number up by like somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4 to 1.5 million.
1: Yeah. But the challenge with this, like it is with any emerging technology is figuring out, wait, how much is there a demand for it? Right. If you've already Mm -hmm. got everybody who likes electric vehicles, but it takes time to ramp up. Like, what does that mean for the market? Go ahead.
3: Yep. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm giving you the point because (laughs) you nailed it. This is one of the big questions. Uh, We know that people like myself, I actually have an EV. I have a Ford F-150 Lightning. uh, Early adopters, those folks, pretty much the ones who were desperate to get into an EV, they've been satisfied. Now the challenge is getting to the mainstream, and that's where we have a lot of uncertainty. In fact, I did a couple stories just before I came in this morning, one of which was a J.D. Power, uh, the EV owner experience study. And they raised a couple of points, which are critical. Why are people not adopting quite as fast as they were last couple of years? Well, one is price. EVs are coming in at about $60,000 on average. Uh, That's compared to about $47,000 for the U.S. market as a whole, which, by the way, is high enough. It's gone up by about a third in a decade that we've actually seen a lot of people priced out of the market for anything. Yeah. And we don't have as many as the market needs of EVs starting in the high 20s and low $30,000 range. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is, believe it or not, not range anxiety. Because most of the EVs now are getting two fifty, three, even 400 miles of range per charge. But if I want to drive up to Mackinac or I want to drive to Chicago or Cleveland or what have you, I want to know that I can get charged up along the way. And that's the second big concern. The public charging network is still on the small side. And here's the worst part. About anywhere from 18 to 30 percent of EV chargers are typically not working. That's been one of the biggest problems. Now, here's the good side. We're seeing the Biden administration pump Tons of money, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into a charging network. We're seeing a network of seven uh, automakers, including GM, Ford, uh, BMW, Kia, Hyundai, Mercedes, I think I got most of them, uh, just launched a new network called Iona which will be setting up tens of thousands of chargers around the country. And today, the, the other story that I wrote uh, just before I came in was the news that the deal between Ford and Tesla just went through. You mentioned Tesla earlier. They've got the best charging network in North America, the supercharger network. And going forward, uh, as of today, uh, Ford EV owners like the Lightning and the Mach-E will be able to plug in and charge at tesla superchargers that doubles the number of chargers around the country that they'll be able to use and better yet the Tesla network is really reliable compared Mm -hmm. to a lot of the other competitors out there.
1: Well, that's good to hear. And so that might allay some concerns. But in the meantime, right, uh, the way factories work, as I understand it, you can't just turn them off and turn them on, right? So if you're ramping up thinking there's going to be a lot of demand and you're not seeing it, that puts a lot of pressure on these car companies in terms of their manufacturing for these items. So what are you seeing there? Do they think they'll be able to ramp up in time to make that need? Are people switching from EVs now to hybrids because they're concerned? What are you seeing in the market? Well, let's
3: let's we'll get back to the hybrid issue in a minute. Let's okay. talk about the factories. Uh, yeah, Ford had originally almost uh, what was it uh, sextupled the capacity of their EV center in Dearborn where they build the F one hundred and fifty Lightning. Uh, they increased it to a potential capacity of one hundred fifty thousand of them a year. Uh, the reality is they'll be lucky if they hit fifty or so this year. So they dropped one of the two shifts that they had running there. They can get it back later on, but right now they had to cut back. Uh, Ford has delayed about $11 billion in spending on EVs. It, does not mean, it doesn't mean that they're stopping it. They're just delaying it uh, for a while uh, to try to let the market catch up. General Motors, you may recall hearing a few months ago that they decided to push back by more than a year, opening or reopening the factory up in uh, uh, Orient Township. Uh, where they were going to build a whole bunch of EVs. So we're seeing manufacturers cut back or delay. And let's get back to the, the uh, hybrid issue. We have seen regular hybrids like the Prius increase tremendously. They're actually at or slightly above the market share of EVs right now. Uh, what the industry seems to be betting on is that they can make even more of a, a market for what they call a bridge technology plug-in hybrids. And for those who aren't familiar with it, and it's surprising how many people don't know what all these electrified vehicles are, yeah. plug-in hybrids have a small battery pack, typically capable of letting the vehicle operate from anywhere from about 25 up to more than 50 miles in pure electric mode. That's enough for most people to do their commutes or daily chores in pure electric mode. Uh, In fact, you probably know the name Celeste Headley, who has been with NPR for many, many years. Celeste uh, owns, I'll bring her up here because she's a big fan of plug-ins. And uh, she told me recently that she can go a month or more before she uses a drop of gasoline. Hmm. But if she wants to go, you know, she's living in Washington. Uh, If she wants to go from Washington to New York or Detroit, there's not a problem. When the battery runs down, she just keeps running on gasoline. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, I think a lot of people feel confidence with that. You kind of get to dip your toe in, and maybe that's the gateway into getting into electric vehicles. But another thing that we're dealing with here in the U.S. is disruption in the field. China has recently mm. changed the game as they've begun to outsell Tesla on the global EV market with its company BYD. These cars are much cheaper than American EVs. And so I want to ask you, Paul, how are American electric vehicle companies shifting Thanks to BYD's in their strategy? Um, How can I say it on the air? Their diapers are
3: dirty. Okay. Um, I think I can say that. Well, you already did. (laughs) Anyway, uh, they are worried. I think the industry in general is worried about the Chinese. Uh, A lot of the companies do get government support. and they're able to get cheap labor and they have access to all the minerals over there. You know, we're just starting to get a reasonable amount of the raw materials, pl- uh, materials like cobalt, nickel, manganese, and so on that we need and lithium here. Uh, so it's, it's a challenge for a lot of the American and European manufacturers. Now, so far, we've only seen a very small number of Chinese vehicles come here, primarily through Buick and through Volvo. And Volvo's gonna be ramping up very quickly their electric vehicles, some of which will come from China, some they're gonna build in in South Carolina. In Europe, however, we're seeing an explosion of Chinese vehicles, and forgive me, my voice is going, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, we're seeing an explosion.
1: That's all right, because we only got 30 more seconds anyway. (laughs) Okay,
3: good. (laughs) We're seeing an explosion of Chinese vehicles, and the reality is we're gonna see a lot more. There'll be some news made by President Biden in the next couple of days. Uh, the word is that he's going to do some cracking down mm-hmm. because they're worried about having these Chinese vehicles with connected car technology mm-hmm. brought over to the U.S. Yeah,
1: it's something that we'll have to dive in next time. We have you back, Paul. Paul Eisenstein, editor at Headlight.News. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Metro. Great to be with you.
2: You know, Nick, hearing that conversation, I'm thinking to myself, I love the idea of the plug-in hybrid. We have that unique blend. So I'm thinking, like, well, if I look into a car soon, yeah, that may be a great option. The
1: best of birth, both worlds. Yes. Optionality. Who doesn't yes. love it? I
2: love that. But, yeah, coming up on the show, we'll have a conversation with the individuals from an improv project happening here in the city of Detroit involving Detroit students. Stay right there for the Metro. Metro.
0: WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. It's
1: the Metro on 101.9 WDET, hanging out with you on Leap Year. It's the 29th, so all of you who have just turned five years old today, even though you're old enough to drink, happy birthday to all of you.
2: I was going to say, you know, every Leap Year, I think, well, there's another four years. Oh, is just, that what you it, mean? There's another four. It's yeah, okay. gone in the wind. And, you know, I'm thinking about comedy right now, thinking about throwing some stuff out there. Nick, uh, did you hear about the very successful Scarecrow?
1: Uh, no, I hear about nothing. Please tell me, Tia.
2: He was outstanding in his field. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it was worth it, Tia. It was worth it. Shout thank out you to so much,
2: Matt Our technical Thank you, Matt, for that. But speaking of comedy, the Detroit Creativity Project is a nonprofit fund founded by performer actor. Mark Evan Jackson. The Detroit Creativity Project aims to foster creative expression among teens and young people while revitalizing, and reintroducing sketch comedy to Detroit. Jackson chose Detroit out of all places because actors, performers, creative artists, in one way or another, credit Detroit for their start in the business. This year, the student showcase features performances by students from nine Detroit public schools participating in the Improv Project, which is Detroit Creativity Project's free public school program and workshop series created for Detroit students. Mark Evan Jackson is a performer and actor and the founder of the Detroit Creativity Project. Jackson is known for his roles in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and the founder of the program. Once again, he was also in Jumanji, Welcome Back to the Jungle. And Nancy Harden, Hayden, excuse me, who's in studio with us, a writer, producer, and the executive director of the Detroit Creativity Project. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm super excited, as you can see. That's what I'm just like, oh. (laughs)
4: <laughs> we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Bob.
2: morning.
5: Thank you. Yeah. On
2: Leap Day. Yeah. So, Mark, just going to start with you, the founder of the Detroit Creativity Project. Um, there's a really cool connection with you, actually, in Michigan. You hosted a show for the uh, NPR affiliate in Grand Rapids. What was that like?
5: <laughs> um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, yeah. we, we could have used about 50 percent more employees than we had. Uh, we were... Very small and scrappy at WGVU, but it was one of those situations that I think happens a lot in in, uh, local affiliates of National Public Radio, which is one day I was the producer of a three-hour-per-day call-and-talk show, and uh, the following Monday I was the host and producer of (laughs) of a three-hour-per-day call-in talk show.
2: It does happen that way. It definitely has happened here before. We've got to jump in and kind of have your hands in everything in NPR, so I love that connection there. But continuing the conversation, the Detroit Creativity Project, it has existed since 2011. Expand on why and you, uh, you and other performers chose Detroit.
5: Well, Detroit, I think for anybody that's ever been there for any length of time or much less grew up there, Detroit is a special place. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I lived, I went to school in Grand Rapids, as you said, lived and worked there for a long time. But I was not in Detroit for very long before it became home. There's something, something in the world, something in the life in Detroit that's really special. And so, uh, I was there for the second city Detroit back, uh, next to the Fox Theater. At Woodward and Moncombe back in the late '90s, and then that—that that is what gave me my start. The reason that anybody's ever heard of me or seen me on Brooklyn Nine-Nine or the Good Place or The Babysitter's Club is because of the lessons I learned at the Second City in Detroit. So, years later, following the the admonition of former Mayor Dave Bing about say something nice about Detroit and do something in Detroit and open a branch in Detroit, we Nancy and I, and along with my wife Beth Hagenlocker got together our Detroit expat friends that live in Los Angeles now, many of whom, most of whom got their starts in Detroit and for whom Detroit is such a an important character. And we said, what should we be doing to give back to the city of Detroit? And it became clear immediately that the common denominator for all of us were the underpinnings, the, the tenets of improv that opened up our worlds, made us less fearful, made us more creative, Um, more collaborative and better listeners, better friends, better people. And we knew immediately that we should be offering free of charge improv classes in Detroit, middle and high schools.
2: And I love that so much, Mark. Um, And I think about what you're talking about, 2011, you all have been doing this, uh, helping young kids. And and I think about improv and helping young people, any person, but young people in general, find confidence and find their voices, especially when they're just trying to be in this world today. So what has it been like watching young performers grow?
5: it 's been amazing It, it truly is uh, among my proudest accomplishments to be anywhere near the Detroit Creativity Project and our flagship program, the Improv Project. We truly do see transformations in people. They, they learn that you know um, high schools and middle schools obviously have a lot of social strata. there are the quiet people, there are the jocks, there are the nerds, there are um, you know the, the pretty people and Improv is a great field leveler. For In order to, for improv to work, everyone has to be involved. Everyone's voice is necessary. And so there are no cool kids. There are no not cool kids. Everybody has to uh, collaborate and listen and respect others and use what's in front of you. And so you see people. You see people physically transform. They're, they stand taller. They get involved more. They have more energy. Um, they realize that not only is their voice important, it's essential for for the comedy, for the scene, for the comment that we're making on society.
2: And, you know, as I'm sitting right here uh, with Nancy, you're just shaking your head up and down. You're you're agreeing with a lot of what Mark is saying.
4: So if you want to elaborate on something that you just heard. Yeah, lots of nodding, lots of agreement, which is also (laughs) crucial to improvisation. I would I mean, I'm going to yes and everything he just said. It's amazing. (laughs) And I think, you know, you and I were talking just before we went on air about what it's been like since the pandemic as well. You know, so not only do we see these these this growth in these students in general, but I'd say within these past three years, it's just become so much more paramount. so much more crucial. Kids left you know they lost half of their high school experience not being in person for two years um, or half of their middle school experience which is only three years long so you know teachers everywhere are saying that you know how how far behind socially some of the kids are uh, and this is something that can you know can help young people have confidence help them think on their feet you know we always say if you know improvisation is a great tool for actors and we always say if people want to be performers fantastic this is a great tool for them to learn but I'm just as happy if somebody uses their improv training to nail a job interview one day or make a presentation at work, you know, and in all the years that Mark and I and so many of our friends have taught improv to adults, we've heard from people over and over again say that they're It's it's helped them become better parents, better partners, better you know attorneys, uh, real estate, anything that you do where you have to talk or you know which we're improvising right now. Exactly, that's
2: what we do in these creative fields and these creative spaces. And and Nancy, just sticking with you, I think about of course the curriculum and adding this into the
4: schools. What was it like developing this uh, this program in such a unique way that you're teaching improv? Well, Mark mentioned all of our friends who have been you know such a huge inspiration. For the program, and we are so lucky to know so many brilliant improvisers and to be able to pull from their minds. Um, You know, a huge part of the brain trust of this program are our teaching artists. They have a vast, you know, level of improv experience. Many of them were students, or performers, or directors in their own right back in the Second City days. And everybody, again, collaborated, kind of came together to help create this this curriculum. And you know, and now we've we've been able to even expound upon that, and we've created more of an improv-to-sketch satire. We call it our 201 curriculum. And that's become hugely, hugely successful as well. And um, that's amazing to, to help young people use their voice to satirize the world around them, which is what we we were so fortunate to get to do at the Second City. Um, we got to write our own sketches and perform them. And, you know, when you're working there in your early 20s, it's like, wait, I can write whatever I want and say whatever I want on this stage. And, you know, to watch, you know, we were talking earlier about mm-hmm. the TikTok generation yeah. now. You know, so improv is also used as a tool to create satire. Um, and so these kids are out actually getting to learn to, you know, use their voices to speak out for social change and the things that matter to them in the world.
2: They are really good at it, too. TikTok really just takes the cake for me. But my last question to both of you is just, of course, about the upcoming event that's happening. It is happening, I believe, March 16th from 2 to 4 p.m. So just give us a rundown, both of you. Just talk about the day and, and what we are going to see.
5: I'll go first. Sure, the um, the the our annual student showcase at the Detroit Public Theater has always been one of my favorite events. Um, it's fun for a myriad of reasons. It's fun to see the confidence and uh, point of view and emotions expressed by these students uh, live and in person. It's also very fun to get students from Detroit, which is geographically a very large city, um, you know, very spread out, together which doesn't happen terribly often. Um, and yes, what Nancy said is very true. Harkening back to our days at the Second City, Detroit, the place that gave us all of our start, this 201 program is something that you'll see some performed of, some of which performed this uh, on Saturday, the 16th of March. And uh, it will be students who have chosen an issue. At uh, These are students from Cass Tech High School and from the Detroit School of Arts who will be, sharing their scenes that they've uh, improvised and re-improvised and, and then eventually written to hold a mirror up to society to say, I'm, I, I don't know specifically what these scenes will be about, but just from what I've I heard waiting to, to come and talk to you, Tia, you could write a scene about whether you think that uh, voting uncommitted in Michigan is a good thing or is a passive move, whether or not you believe that marijuana should be legal in, Mar- in Michigan. Um, you could talk about Uh, plug-in hybrids or the foster (laughs) exhibit at Cranbrook. There are all these things that you can say, hey, do we all agree that this thing that's going on is a good thing or a bad thing? And through the lens of comedy, you're sharing all that stuff.
4: Yeah, I it's that. true, and I, I I have to agree about going back to the excitement of seeing all of the the young students being able to come together. Uh, you know, they get to perform in front of their families, some of whom have never seen them even on a stage before at all. Like I said, many of our students are amazing actors. I mean, these kids at Cast Tech and Detroit School of the Act Detroit School of the Arts they will inspire anybody and, and and intimidate a little bit. You walk in there and it's like fame. Um, but we also include just as many schools that, you know, this isn't about a theater program for them. Yeah. Like we said, this is more of a of a life skill. And some of them have never been on a stage before. And getting to see that for the first time and the excitement on their faces and then watching them support one another from all these different schools, like Mark said, that, you know, don't ever get to come together socially. It's a fantastic day. It's a really I want to say
2: thank you. But I would love to continue to talk. We could talk all day, but that Thank you so much. Mark Evan Jackson is a performer, actor, known for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and Jumanji as well. Nancy Hayden is a writer, producer, and the artistic director of the Chicago Second City Training Center and the executive producer of executive director of the Creativity Project. Thank you so much for joining the show, both of you, and good luck March 16th.
4: Thank you so much. Thanks for having
5: us. Thank you, too.
1: This is the Metro on 1019 WDET, and coming up, we'll hear about how an old Detroit painting was recovered and how it's being honored at Cranbrook's Art Museum.
2: Welcome back to the Metro on 101.9 FM. I am Tia Graham, as always, right next to Nick Austin. And we're going to bring you,
1: you know, news, arts, That's and right. culture. That's right. Always. Sunday, Saturday, the evenings. You can't get away from Sunday, me, Tia. Monday, Tuesday. Oh, yep. my gosh. Sherelle, <laughs> Alexander O'Neill, Saturday Love. By the way, guys, if you need something to roller skate to or dance to, yeah. Sherelle, Alexander O'Neill, Saturday Love. It's the track
2: you would know your soul Saturday himself. So you would know, you would know. But we do have a really, really inspiring story that's coming up next, Nick.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm looking forward to this one too because this January we really did have a pretty groundbreaking event that happened here in uh, Michigan because Michigan's first LGBTQ Senior Center opened in Ferndale. Located on West Nine Mile, advocates hope the opening can be a significant step forward in addressing the unique needs of LGBTQ uh, elders, providing them with safe and welcoming services. I started my conversation speaking with Angela Gaybridge, who's the executive director of MyGen, to learn more about MyGen's mission.
6: MyGen is Michigan's only 501c3 nonprofit exclusively dedicated to the needs of LGBTQ plus older adults and those who care for them. Uh, The organization has been around now for about 15 years um sometimes other under other names formerly the organization was known as sage metro detroit which sort of came about from the merger of a couple smaller um, more grassroots community-led organizations Um, and now we are a staff of 10 full-time folks and some part-time and and other support for the organization and we are invested in lots of things trying to make trying to make life better for the community.
1: Yeah, this sounds real interesting to me because you would have, I think we would expect support groups for LGBTQ+, and then you would have support group for seniors, but my gen seems to be merging these. Is there anything unique about the members that you serve that wouldn't be fit in one or the other bucket that's why you guys uh, do what you do?
6: That's a great question, and the answer is yes. You know, this is a group that has had some very unique life experiences, um, both in a positive sense as well as some unique challenges that may be different um, to younger members of the LGBTQ community, as well as different experiences for many of their peers among you know, the older adult and, and senior set of individuals. And so um, they have very unique needs, challenges, experiences, and it's wonderful to be able to offer Unique services and spaces for them to gather with their peers.
1: Before we get into the senior center itself, you mentioned unique challenges. Do you have any stories or anything that you can share from your experience or what people have told you that you've worked with?
6: Sure. Uh, You know, statistically, our communities are far more likely the general population to live on alone, Um, far less likely to have children, to be connected with families of origin, due to you. discrimination, marginalization that they've faced at various points in their lifetimes. Um, Far more likely as well to be resource constrained due to chronic under or unemployment that often faces the community, as well as so many members of the community that lost out on resources when a a longtime partner passed away before marriage was legal here in Michigan and across the country. you know, also lose out then on Social Security benefits or retirement savings, oftentimes what had been a family home for couples. Um, Many of our folks ended up losing access to those resources when a partner would pass away and and those resources would go to families of origin or other entities because of what the legal ramifications were at that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why it's so... uh such a big deal that uh, and such a milestone for you to be opening this uh, senior center dedicated to uh, LGBTQ plus can you tell us about the senior center that opened in January what uh, needs it serves and how it helps out uh, the members of your group and those that you're seeking to access it in there in Ferndale
6: sure so it does a few things one is that it really serves as a home base for us as an organization Um, It's one of two senior centers that we're planning on rolling out here in 2024, the second, of course, being in the city of Detroit at Corktown Health. Um, And it just makes us much more available and physically present within and for the community. It also establishes and further deepens an ongoing partnership that we've had with affirmations really since the first days of this organization, and that Affirmations, for the first time, is gaining a fully functional embedded senior services department within the building that is available to the community. Um, We are able to work with Affirmations and their team in terms of developing um, collaborative programming to meet the needs of their older adult communities in Ferndale and the surrounding areas. Um, We're also able to activate the space and all of the wonderful things that the community center has available for um, not only our older adult communities, but for all of the LGBTQ community and their allies.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we've been speaking about the Senior Center at Affirmations, but I don't know if we spoke specifically about Affirmations. For those who aren't so familiar, can you just give us a little bit about Affirmations also?
6: Sure. So Affirmations is really the home of the LGBTQ community here in Southeast Michigan. It's the largest LGBTQ community center in the state, and one of the 10th largest in the country. Um, They have been around for over 30 years, um, outstanding organization that is exclusively focused on the needs of the LGBTQ community. And that's all ages and all parts of the LGBTQ community, who they serve um, is a very um, wide focus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about then the senior center before we get into expansion ideas just for someone who's maybe a member of the community, elder wants to learn more or get involved. What's the best way for them to do that?
6: Sure. So best way is to visit the website which is mygenconnect.org, and that's spelled m i g e n connect org you can sign up for the newsletter there as well we have a really comprehensive monthly newsletter that goes out via email as well as weekly touch bases all of our events all of our programming everything is listed in there you can also check us out on facebook and instagram we're on both of those platforms as well um, and we offer a full suite of services both in terms of social engagement and connection outings potlucks different sorts of field trips things like that lots of art talks and other speaker talks and we also have direct service and human service so that's food program uh, community navigation we just had a couple of staff members go through mmap training for medicare counseling Um, lots of other programs that we have to offer as well
1: all right any plans for the future
6: always plans for the future. We're really excited to be bringing this to Detroit as well in Corktown. Um, we are looking at assessing the housing needs of our older adult community here in Southeast Michigan and around the state, and really looking at ways that we can support other LGBTQ organizations as well as aging care providers around the state and working with LGBTQ LGBTQ plus older adults.
1: That was Angela Gaybridge, Executive Director of MyGen, Michigan's LGBTQ elder Network, Elders Network discussing the opening of Michigan's first LGBTQ plus senior center in Ferndale. And this is the Metro.
2: Taking a quick look at the weather forecast today, sunny and much, much colder. Normal February weather, actually, a high around 38 today, a low near 29. Tomorrow, Friday, partly sunny, a high around 49. This weekend, Saturday, partly sunny and mild, a high near 54. And Sunday, partly sunny, a high near 63. We'll start next week off Monday with a high around 69 degrees. And that is the beginning of March. However, Detroit has many hidden gems, and one of them is a large-scale painting called Renaissance City. It had set secretly tucked away in Cass Tech High School's drawing studio for 17 years. Before then, it was on display in the school's cafeteria. The painting was recently recovered and is on display again as part of a retrospective of Foster's work at Cranbrook Art Museum. The exhibit, Leroy Foster, Solo Show, has been open for a number of months and plans to wrap up on March 3rd. In the Groove host Ryan Patrick Hooper has the story.
7: When Leroy Foster's lost mural appeared on the floor of the Cranbrook Art Museum for the first time, people stopped what they were doing.
6: Oh.
7: Oh my the mural shows Detroit rising from the ashes after the 1967 rebellion. Foster called it Renaissance City, and for years it hung at a local high school. Curator Andrew Rouse de Perez.
5: In Renaissance City, you'll see sort of these faces, which are black and white, um, and they sort of represent racial prejudice, violence, discrimination.
7: If Foster is known at all, it's for this mural and two others that were hung in public buildings around the city. But Foster really isn't known, even though he was once called the Dean of Black Artists. Another nickname he picked up in his heyday? Detroit's Michelangelo.
1: Just the way he approached anatomy was so specific.
7: That's curator Mario Moore, who helped put this exhibit together. It's the first solo museum show on Foster ever, 30 years after his death. People go get mad at me, but I'm telling you. And it does sound a little crazy, but Moore, an accomplished artist himself, argues that Leroy Foster was a better painter than Michelangelo. Leroy, like, he's really painting. I think it's the way that he deals with broken colors and puts them together in a very painterly way. In Foster's Michelangelo-esque paintings, the faces and bodies depicted were often black faces, modeled after people he knew. Moore says Foster's a master of his craft, but he's not remembered like that. Valerie Mercer says that's not surprising. A lot of it has to do with the art world, but a lot of it really has to do with racism. Mercer is the head curator of African-American art at the Detroit Institute of Arts.
4: I don't see any of this that's happening now as rediscoveries. I mean, this is the first time it's happening for them. Roy, yes, he was active in his lifetime, but then he was definitely forgotten.
7: So forgotten that tracking down his paintings proved a challenge. It was like a detective story. Curators had to make a lot of calls, talk to a lot of people. One guy even had to break into a building. Was it your first time going into an abandoned building to rescue art? No, you're trying to make me incriminate myself. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Sangor Reed is a painter himself. His work is in a show on black realist painters running at the same time at Cranbrook with Leroy Foster's show. He saw the Renaissance City mural at Cass Tech High School as a kid, And about 20 years ago, he heard it might be tucked away, forgotten about. And so, he rescued it. I mean, in the moment,
1: we felt like we were being called to do something that was larger and greater than
7: ourselves. Painting by painting, drawing by drawing, finding his artwork has given curators a fuller picture of the type of person Leroy Foster was. Laura Mott is the chief curator at the museum.
6: He lived such a big unapologetic life. He was, like, out and queer, like, in the 1940s and 50s.
7: Foster was living as an openly gay man at a time when it was rare and dangerous. He associated with activists and performed in drag under the name Martini Marty.
6: His studio was, like, covered in gold LeMay and with, like,
8: <laughs> with carpets and cats and paintings everywhere.
7: Matt and her staff have been working on the show for years, talking to the few people who knew him.
8: Dolores said that uh, Louis Foster would throw uh, parties and make Andy Warhol blush.
7: This museum show is cementing Foster's legacy as a titan of realist painting. But just as importantly, Foster inspired generations of other Detroit painters even though they didn't realize that's who they were looking at at the time.
1: I didn't know much
2: about him in in high school at Cass. I would see it and I would look at it and be like, wow. And then
7: I just go about my, my business. I didn't spend any time trying to take it all in. Mario Moore was a little offended, he said, when people first started to compare their styles.
2: Right after high school into undergrad, people would look at my work and they'd be like, you ever heard of Leroy Foster? You know, your work kind of reminds me of Leroy Foster. And I'm like, no, it don't.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Now he's proud. And after Leroy Foster's solo show wraps up at the Cranbrook Art Museum, the restored Renaissance City mural will be displayed once again at Cast Tech High School so a whole new generation of artists can take it in like Mario Moore did when he was young.
2: That was In the Groove's host, Ryan Patrick Cooper, discussing Leroy Foster's exhibit at the Cranbrook Art Museum. This is The Metro.
1: Coming up, Michigan's Redistricting Commission is gearing up to resubmit new maps to a federal court after a federal lawsuit deemed the first maps unconstitutional. But first, today is leap year, and I'll let you know a little bit more about it got that history for you because leap years were first introduced by Julius Caesar. The concept of leap years was first introduced to the Julian calendar over 2,000 years ago. The calendar added an extra day to February every four years to keep the calendar year synchronized with the astronomical year. And while leap years generally occur every four years, there are exceptions. Years divisible by 100, for example, are not leap years unless they're also divisible by 400. For example, the year 1900 was not a leap year, but 2000 was.
2: Mm, math.
1: Leap years help keep our calendar in sync with the solar
2: year. A solar year, also known as a tropical year, is the time it takes for the Earth to complete its orbit around the sun. It's about 365.2425 days long. By adding an extra day to the calendar every four years, we keep our calendar aligned with the solar year, Not perfectly though. Because leap years add an extra day to the calendar, they can shift the dates of holidays. For example, Easter Sunday can fall on different dates in leap years compared to non-leap years. This is because Easter is calculated based on the vernal equinox and the phases of the moon, which can affect the extra day in February.
1: That's right, Tia. Basically, you don't want it to feel like summertime in February, I guess, unless you live in Michigan. Or unless you're going through some type of weird... What does it matter? The seasons are all out of alignment, but that's okay. What is in alignment? The metro always. And coming up, like I said, we'll hear about the makings of a new potential state house map in Southeast Michigan and why some Detroiters want to change our maps when we return.
2: To the Metro On 1019 WDETFM I am Tia Graham Of course Nick Austin Is right here with me And what up dough That's how it goes Just some quick news Hits for you Apple is suggesting Not to use rice To dry out Your smartphone Nick we always put You know Our smartphones Our different Electrical devices In rice To suck out that water But Apple says no Mm. They, they just no. want you to
1: buy a new phone, right? They really do. Instead,
2: dry off the exterior with a towel or anything that's absorbent. Take out the SIM card and holder. If possible, remove the back housing and battery to wipe them down. Also, if possible, turn the phone off. iPhones can't be disassembled, so Apple recommends tapping it gently against your hand with the connector ports facing down so liquid can flow out, a.k.a. They want you to buy a new phone.
1: Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, they say that will work, right? Yeah. I. I remember when I could change the battery on my phone. Hey, how about that instead of getting a new one, man?
2: Remember the old good days of that? I miss them. Flip phone slap down. Just another quick uh, story, an update for those. Chrysler is recalling 330,000 Jeep Grand Cherokees because of a possible problem with the steering wheels. Models affected are from the 2021 through 2023 model years. And the National Highway Traffic Administration says two parts could separate, causing the steering wheel to fall out. Dealers will replace the parts for free, and affected owners will be notified by mail. So that's pretty serious. So if you do have one of those vehicles, just be yeah. on the lookout.
1: And another thing that's very serious is our state maps. They're so important to what we do in terms of representation uh, with our political bodies. And there are arguments all over the place, one way or the other, on the best way to do it, the fairest way to do it. It can be a challenge, one of the reasons why we are back looking at Michigan's Redistricting Commission, which is submitting a new state house map which will be reviewed by a federal court. The proposal known as Motown Sound E1 combined some Detroit districts with its suburbs but not to the extent that the state's current house maps do. Detroiter Natalie Bienamy is a plaintiff in the federal lawsuit challenging the maps in court. She spoke with WDET's Russ McNamara about why she decided to challenge the maps.
8: What happens with redistricting, once that result is in, it lasts for over 10 years. And so I was looking at who's gonna represent me in the city of Detroit and are my best interest when it comes to um, you know, housing, when it comes to water, when it comes to issues of redlining with insurance. Um, it's very challenging to live in the city of Detroit and when my car note is the same amount as my insurance payment. And when you look at folks like uh, former state representative Sherry Gay Yogo and others who have talked about our no-fault insurance here in the state and how it is a financial struggle for many people who live in the city, it made me become more interested in who Will then take my interest as an individual and talk about those things in the legislature, which leads us to what 's happening right now so when you see that we have we went from having three to four uh, representatives from the city of Detroit in our um, in our Congress to zero it lets you see that black representation doesn't matter to the people here who make the decisions so how can we make things happen where we can see people who look like us who understand the issues in our community really best represent the people of the city of Detroit well they need to be people from Detroit well when we start making those lines go from the city of Detroit to Oakland County and then also to Macomb County it creates a a, a narrative in a situation where people cannot win we see people who have struggled and tried to win like uh, former state representative uh lamar lemons just spoke of in his race you go through and then trying to get uh support from those individuals they don't, they won't let you come to their doors people take out their guns they're getting arrested And they're saying, hey, you only are interested in representation from Detroit, but not really thinking about any other communities. And that's far from the truth. But if we are going to have a vested interest of those individuals here, we need to make sure that we represent the people from Detroit first. We're the largest city in the uh, state of Michigan.
5: What do you say to someone like Helena Scott, who does have a district that goes
1: across 8 Mile uh, and still represents the city of Detroit, uh, she was able to you know, prove and get out there and actually uh, you know, get those votes in the suburbs. Are you worried that you're discounting the ability for black people to get out to vote in the suburbs?
8: I don't think that I'm trying to discount that opportunity, but that we have to look at things realistically. Sometimes that happens well with some people. However, that does not mean it will happen and be true for all. And right now, if we look at the way that the maps are made, they're not really intrinsic to making it work for the current masses of people who will futuristically run for office. They will not be able to win. And that's one of the reasons why I became a plaintiff in the lawsuit. It's because black leadership matters, and we need to look at what's going to happen next for our future leaders for the city of Detroit.
1: That was WDET's Russ McNamara speaking with Detroiter Natalie bien about a possible new statehouse district map in Southeast Michigan. This is the Metro, your daily source for news, arts and culture, driving Southeast Michigan, where rum, I rum. am, Nick Austin, joined by, I guess, the, the, the vehicle, the machine, the motor, the engine, Tia Graham.
8: You
2: know, you know, we got to try to have that energy going. <laughs> Sometimes I'm hybrid. Yeah. And sometimes I'm gas power. There it
1: is. Right. Yeah. But I think that our friends with the big three automakers would say, hey, each get significant power. All right. Exactly. Don't discount diesel versus gas mm-hmm. versus hybrid exactly. versus EV. They all got that power is what they would say.
2: They would all say. Yes, they would. They want us to buy all of them, all <laughs> the options they have. So that's I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. OK, I'm here for that. However, we do have uh, uh, things happening in the city of Detroit as well as Metro Detroit. But the biggest thing that's happening right now that we heard just a little bit at the top was just about the owners of Ford Electric Vehicles and how they can use much of Tesla's charging network in the U.S. and Canada. I still find that just so fascinating. That conversation at the top was really, really great. So, if you have not heard that conversation, you tuned in late to the Metro, you can rehear this conversation or this show at 10 p.m. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it is
1: significant, Tia, because by uh, doing this, uh, they became the first automaker to reach an agreement with Tesla, again, to allow Uh, their own folks to charge on the network which is the largest network in the country and hey ford will be sending out free adapters for those right so getting access to that apple doesn't do that anymore (laughs) they give you a phone with almost nothing now so you know that's a huge deal i wouldn't know i don't use (laughs) iphone products that's not my world
2: oh i understand nick however in the world that we're in right now we're going to bring in ryan patrick cooper ryan
7: What's going on? How are you? Why don't you guys ever say the name of the show?
2: We I literally you always just, just say my name, Ryan. It's been, in the
7: groove with Ryan Patrick. We've Hooper. been saying
2: it all day. We had your beautiful story with Leroy. Uh, for, we, we we've been doing it all day. Yeah,
7: people should definitely get to Cranbrook. It closes on Sunday. You do not want to miss skilled labor and the Leroy Foster exhibit. It's going to be incredible. The weather should be nice. Walk around Cranbrook. And today on In the Groove, I've got tons of tickets to give away to support. Mosaic Youth Theater, one of the most critical, most incredible arts organizations in the city. You can see one of their productions this weekend. And I've got tickets to give away to see the National and War on Drugs These are going to be a big show that's coming to Michigan Lottery Amphitheater, and you can win today on In the Groove coming up in just a couple minutes here on WDET.
2: You should have saw his arms going back and forth. He's excited, you all. And that's the Metro. On a leap day, February 29th, you can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform.
1: The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrin. Our technical director is Nate Bender music by sam bobian and our news director is jerome vaughn our program director is adam fox the
2: metro is a wdet production a listener supported service of wayne state university and if you like what you hear and want to support the metro consider becoming a member at wdet.org slash donate
1: you're listening to 1019 wdet fm detroit public radio your connection to news music and conversation
2: Thank you so much for listening.
0: WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.